Well, welcome to this gathering of Rotherham Evangelical Church. Um, as I was already mentioned before, I have, I'm only, have, we, my family's only been here for two months. We have thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, you might ask what we're doing now in this time uh, of the service. I don't know, many, maybe some of you, obviously many of you, are here every week, so you know exactly what we're doing. But some of you don't come very often. And uh, what we're about to do is have a talk uh, about the Bible. Every week what we do during this time, it's kind of the central time for, uh, for our gatherings in the afternoon and evenings, is when we go and we look at uh, a text in Scripture, a passage in the Bible. And what we do is we explain that passage in its original context, and then we, and then we apply it to, to the people here living today in this building. And the reason we do that is because we believe that the Bible, this book right here, we believe that it's the Word of God. We believe that it's, uh, it has truth from God in it. We believe that it's the truth, that it, we believe it's truth about the world. We believe it's truth about God himself. And lastly, we believe it's truth about us. So it's very important that we read Scripture, that we explain it, and then see how it shapes us and the world and our view of God. So that's what we're going to do this evening, like we always do. We're going to be in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and uh, you can look at that in your Bible, but we've also printed it out on this paper, and it's in your, should be in the bulletin uh, that you received this evening. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found him, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search out carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we're supposed to have one more verse, but I'm using that. Does Does anybody have their Bible out right now? Anybody? Noah. Okay. Yes. Would you read out very loudly, verse 12? I mean, very, very loudly. Okay. Thank you. Are you ready for Christmas? It's an odd question, isn't it? It means, are you stocked up with all your groceries for the Christmas dinner? Do you have the turkey? Do you have the ham? Do you have all your Christmas shopping done? What about all your Christmas cards written? 
That's a strange phenomenon we've noticed here. We've received cards from people we've never even met, and then uh, it's funny when your neighbors give you Christmas cards and they haven't even come to visit you yet. It's very strange. Anyways, have you written all your Christmas cards yet? I'm notoriously not ready for Christmas. I can't remember, quite frankly, a Christmas Eve where I'm not out the night before Christmas, which is Christmas Eve, uh, doing my shopping or getting the last-minute ingredients for uh, a mulled wine, an essential in, uh, in the Harding house. And I think it would be fairly safe to say that I'm not the only one in that category. It's funny, isn't it? Because Christmas comes the same time every year. It's not a big surprise if you think about it, is it? I mean, there are 364 days to prepare for Christmas. And not only that, there's about three months of all the shops telling you Christmas is coming well in advance. Well, the irony is, the first Christmas wasn't much different. Israel waited centuries for their Messiah to come. And when I say Messiah, I simply mean the long-awaited king of Israel, who was to come and liberate his people and ultimately restore God's kingdom on earth. That's the Messiah. Anyways, Israel's messengers from God, the prophets, had stopped talking had had become silent for about 400 years. Israel was now under Roman rule, and it probably felt like Christmas would never come. In the short story that we just read, and that we're going to look at this evening, we see that Jerusalem, the very people who should have been eagerly anticipating the coming of their Messiah, really weren't ready for him at all. So I'm first going to retell the story. See, the beautiful thing about narratives is that they're powerful. They draw you in, right, to the truth. They're powerful because they don't just communicate truth by telling you the truth. They're powerful because they draw you in. They show you the truth. And so we're going to try to let that story sink in this evening. And we're first just going to retell the story. So in chapter 1, before we get to chapter 2 in Matthew, Matthew records for us the birth of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And after Matthew tells us about the birth of Jesus in chapter 1, he records this surprising visit of magi from the east. These Gentile magi were seeking the the recently born king of the Jews. And naturally, they came to Jerusalem, right? The capital city where you would find the king. Now, before we go on, I think these magi need a little bit of explaining. Whether there were two or three, like we sing about in our song, or 30, I don't really know. And honestly, it doesn't matter. The important question is, who are they? We usually refer to them as wise men. That's somewhat misleading, I think. It almost makes us think that Matthew, the author, is presenting these men to us as inherently wise, perhaps spiritually discerning. And that's why they saw this messianic star and and followed it to to, to find Jesus. But Matthew couldn't be doing, that couldn't be further from the truth. The term here, magi, refers to pagan priests, seers. You know, the guys who read like the tea leaves, okay? You may even remember them, if, if you know the Bible very well, in the book of Daniel. These are the magi, same word, are, are the people who were supposed to interpret Daniel's or, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the king of Babylon, but couldn't. Same thing. 
The Magi are pagan priests who serve in the royal courts in the East. And you should remember, the East is no innocent destination. The Magi likely came from a place called Sheba. You also know it, if you've read the the Old Testament, as Babylon. The ancient, great enemy of God's people. If you were a first century Jew or Christian reading this, these pagan, pagan magi would be the last people you would expect to show up on Matthew's page that have visited and they're here worshiping, coming to see the Messiah. It's the last people you would expect. So the stage has been set. The pagan magi see the messianic star and they make the thousand plus trek on foot to Jerusalem. And in verse 2 there, the Magi come to the ruler in Jerusalem, Herod, searching for a location of the king of the Jews. And as you might expect, Herod's a bit troubled to hear about some supposed usurper to his throne. King of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. In verse 3, it's interesting to note that all Jerusalem was disturbed with Herod. It's as if Matthew wants to foreshadow the later rejection of Jesus not just by Herod, but by the entire royal city. Well, in verse 4, Herod recognizes that this king whom the Magi are seeking is not merely another political usurper. In fact, he's the long-awaited Messiah. So he calls all his chief priests, all the scribes in Israel, all the religious leaders in Israel, and he says, where will this guy be born? Where will this Christ be born? And in verses 5 and 6, they answer Herod, in Bethlehem and Judea. And then Matthew gives some additional evidence for the answer by quoting from the prophet Micah. He says this in verse 6. You can read along with me. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we know in the middle of this story, there's a hint that Matthew's giving us, that Messiah, the true king of Israel... He'd be from the lowliest of origins, the least among the rulers of Judah. He wouldn't receive his kingship on the basis of position or power or status. He'd be from lowly Bethlehem. But even more, this Messiah would rule like a shepherd, not like a tyrant. He would protect his people. He would care for his people. As we later learn, he would even sacrifice for his people. Well, Herod, right, rather than celebrating at the coming of the Messiah, which he should be doing, plots to murder him. Verses 7 and 8, Herod pretends that he wants to worship this newborn king. So he asks the Magi, when did this star first appear? He's trying to gather the, the, the age of this newborn king. And later in, the, later in the chapter, right, Herod would use this very, inf- this er- very information to slaughter all the newborn babies in Bethlehem under two, all the the boy babies. Then he deceptively told the Magi to search diligently for the child and report to him so that he can worship them as well. Of course, we know that's not his intent. Well, anyways, the Magi continued on their way to Bethlehem where the star had stopped and their long and dangerous journey had finally come to an end. They had reached their goal, the dwelling place of the Messiah, the King. And the text notes that they were rejoicing. And I think, with all the rising tension of this short narrative, we reach the climax. What will these pagan magi do? 
Will they capture him? Maybe understanding the hints from Herod and bring him back to Herod? Maybe will they study him as an interesting foreign character? Or will they worship him as king? Well, when they saw him, they fell down and they worshipped him. Giving precious gifts to him from the east. You have these royal, priestly, pagan figures from an enemy nation laying prostrate. Nose in the dust in front of an infant boy. Quite a scene. Verse 11 concludes, verse 12, by telling us that these magi did not return to the king, Herod, to tell him, and and they actually were warned by God in a dream to return a different way, and so they avoided Herod. Jesus escapes into Nazareth. So, interesting story, but what what, what is Matthew trying to do with the story is the question, right? Remember, narratives are meant to shape us. So how should we be shaped by this narrative? I think the significance of this story, and I believe you see it up here, is found in the contrast between two kings in the story and two responses in the story. First, there are two kings in this story, and they rule in very different ways, don't they? Herod, of course, is given his kingship by the Roman Empire. Israel was one of one portion of Rome's vast empire, and they placed a Jew, and, and, and Rome placed a Jewish ruler of sorts over them to somewhat appease the Jewish people. But ultimately, he was just a really a, a puppet ruler for the Romans. Jesus, however, is given his kingship by right. He is the true son and image of God. King Herod uses his power, ambition, even strategic deception to build his kingdom, doesn't he? And to protect his kingdom. He even murders hundreds of infant boys in order to protect his throne. But we read in verse 6, Jesus comes from lowly origins. He doesn't use status, position, power to build his kingdom. The Messiah will come from the least of the tribes of Judah. But what's even more crucial is that Jesus doesn't rule like a tyrant. Verse 6, he rules like a shepherd. He will lay down his life for the sheep. He will protect his people. He cares for them like a good shepherd. The most damning feature of Herod's rule is that he he seeks to protect his kingship by murdering the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. The person in whom Israel, and really the whole world, should have put all their hope, he plots to kill. But we know the end of the story, don't we? If we read on in the book of Matthew, Jesus, in his supreme act as king, came not to kill, but to be killed. Matthew would record these words later in his account. Jesus says of himself, The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for the ransom of many. You see, the Roman political rulers of the day, the Jewish religious leaders, 
they all thought they were putting Jesus to death, didn't they? But in reality, Christ was giving over his life to ransom, to rescue sinners. The sinless king was taking on the punishment of sinners. He was executed at the hand of angry sinners for repentant sinners. And his dying was his supreme act of kingship. So Matthew is begging one question of his audience, and I would suggest is begging us one question of this audience. Which king is worthy of worship? Right? Isn't he begging that in the narrative? He doesn't have to say it, does he? He's presenting it to you. We also see a contrast of two responses to Jesus. On the one hand, we should be shocked that not only Herod, but all Jerusalem was disturbed, in verse 3, by hearing that the Messiah had been born. Even the religious leaders, the, the, the chief priests and teachers of the law, who give Herod the place uh, of the location of the Messiah's birth, there's no indication in the narrative that they're particularly eager to find this Messiah. This should shock the reader. It would have certainly shocked the first century Jewish reader. What do you mean all Jerusalem by the, was disturbed by the news that the Messiah had arrived? They should be rejoicing. This is the climax of their own history. In fact, of world history, right? The king that would bring God's kingdom has arrived, and they were either disturbed, troubled, or disinterested. This whole episode foreshadows a later point in the book of Matthew. In Matthew uh, chapter 21, verse 10, Jesus, Jesus is coming and making his royal entrance into the city, his processional into the royal city as the king. And Matthew, te- Matthew tells us that the whole city, along with the religious leaders, was disturbed. Same verb. And they were asking, who is this? Who does this guy think he is? Of course, eventually, the chief priests and the scribes gather again, but this time not to find the location of of, of Jesus, but to plot to kill him. In fact, it's the religious leaders of Israel, the people who were to shepherd Israel themselves, that ultimately fulfill the role of Herod and, and plot and kill Jesus himself. The perplexing and beautiful part of the story, though, is that Gentile, pagan priests are presented as the characters to emulate. Gentiles were on the outside of God's kingdom looking in. In fact, Israel was to display God's kingdom to the Gentiles. In fact, the last person on earth that should be at the feet of Jesus would be pagan priests from enemy territories in the east. And it's really hard for us to feel the gravity of such a story. This would be like Jesus coming again. We know he will. Returning again. And all the Christian religious leadership mocks Jesus when he comes. And then you have radical Islam leaders coming there and worshiping Jesus. That's what's happening here. The gravity has to sink in. It doesn't hit us unless we put it in kind of contemporary terms. 
they fall at his feet and worship him. Matthew is showing us that God's kingdom comes to the unlikeliest of people. The people in God's kingdom won't be defined by ethnicity or position or success or power. It's not even built around the really nice and, and, and good people around you. That's not what defines God's kingdom. No, the people who make up God's kingdom are those who worship Jesus. Not just those who assent to him, who kind of intellectually say maybe, but those who identify with him, who give their hearts and their hopes over to him. The true citizens of God's kingdoms find their identity in the king, Jesus. Friends, I realize that many of you happen to be visiting tonight, and you probably came to a carol service because it's a nice, socially enjoyable thing to do. I get it. Perhaps you even think, if there is any truth to this Christian thing, I better at least show up Christmas, Easter. What you come to expect at these sort of things is a few nostalgic carols, a warm and encouraging, inspirational daily kind of talk, maybe, a few snacks and a warm drink. Well, we've sung the carols, and the, the, the snacks and the mince pies and the drinks are coming afterwards. But this person that we're talking about, Jesus and his, his life and his ministry, his death, it demands a response. A serious, thoughtful, life-transforming response. And here's the thing. Jesus gives us two options. It's binary. Worship me or reject me. Find your identity in me? Hate me. Be the Magi? Be Jerusalem. See, the Magi were real men who probably had real reservations traveling a thousand plus miles by foot to worship a foreign king. This may have been considered treason in their own kingdom. They had every reason to believe, they didn't have any reason to really believe in this Messiah. But somehow, in some way, God broke into their hearts, we don't know how, and revealed that Jesus is the true king. And they acted in a radical way on that belief, didn't they? They put their full-throated trust in this Jesus. Listen, this short story, and especially the rest of Jesus' story was not designed to merely make you feel warm and kind of give you daily inspiration, although it may do that. It's designed to transform you. It's designed to reorient your view of the world. It's designed to reorient your worship, to give you a transformed identity and meaning. I'm asking you tonight, or after this, at some point, to make a life-altering decision. Worship Jesus and find your identity in him. Some of you here tonight perhaps find your identity in work. You worship at the throne of success. Your meaning in life is to make a name for yourself. 
Maybe you want to do that by becoming wealthy. Maybe you desperately want people to think highly of you, perhaps even envy you. Are you worshiping your work? Some of you perhaps are worshiping your family. Your value, your your satisfaction comes from having a happy, functioning, well-functioning, healthy family. And if if your child disappoints you, if your spouse rejects you, if you lose your loved one, there's just no reason to keep on living. Is your God your family? And perhaps some of you are searching for something to worship. You're looking for meaning and identity, and the the entire world is telling you where to find meaning. They say, look within yourself. The deeper you look within yourself, once you find yourself, you'll have freedom. You'll have liberty, they say. You'll have meaning and joy and satisfaction. Some of you will want to try to find that meaning, that identity, in group therapy or in mysticism. Or maybe you're trying to find it, your meaning in life, through sexuality or sexual fantasy. If I could just have this sexual expression or this sexual culmination, I could find happiness. The larger culture tells you that if you have any king other than yourself, any authority higher than yourself, then you're enslaved and you're oppressed. That you have no freedom unless you're accountable only to you. Don't believe that lie. Because you'll just end up worshiping yourself. No one will be allowed into your life. No one will be able to evaluate you. No one will be able to admonish you. You will become your own judge, jury, and executioner. And guess what? You'll never execute or judge or be a jury. You are the highest authority in your life. Everyone in this building has a king. Everybody worships something or someone. You do put your faith somewhere. We have no faithless people here. Some of you might think that you're the unbiased skeptic. But I want to challenge you on something. Even you, the skeptic, put immense faith in not worshiping Jesus. Yeah, I said, you put faith in not worshiping Jesus. That kind of seems backwards. You put faith, if you don't believe in God, you put faith in the belief that the world in all its intricacy, in all its beauty, in all its irreducible complexity, was created without any designer. If you don't believe in God and in Jesus, you put faith in the belief that maybe there is no ultimate meaning to this world. That there's no ultimate purpose to life. You put immense immense faith that all of Jesus' disciples and hundreds more that he was shown to were all deluded into thinking that he rose from the dead. You put faith that all of Jesus' disciples were eventually went to death and were martyred 
for someone they knew was a fraud in their hearts. You have faith that with the terrible ultimate atrocities and evils and injustices in the world, that there's no ultimate justice coming for anyone. You have faith that there is neither good nor evil in the world, but just culturally acceptable and not culturally acceptable. In fact, if you were honest, it takes faith to not worship Jesus. We all have faith, but I'm suggesting that some of us have misplaced faith. Perhaps you've put your faith in yourself tonight. Or some attractive identity in which you find, think you're going to find ultimate fulfillment. Jesus stands as the center point of scripture. And his beckoning call is, have faith in me, worship me, and I'll bring you ultimate joy and satisfaction in life. Because I'm going to bridge the deep chasm between God who created you and loves you and wants to be your father and he wants you to be his son. And the reconciliation of that relationship is far more satisfying than any fleeting pleasure this world has to offer. So are you ready for Christmas? Because the baby king in a manger starts off low the man who died in absolute humiliation on a cross. That same man rose from the grave. And he went into heaven. And he's coming again. There will be a second advent. And as the song says, every eye will see the Messiah at that time. And when they see him, he will be dressed in dreadful majesty. And this time he will be holding a scepter and a rod of iron. And every knee will bow down to this king. Every knee will bow down to him, either as a ransom, ransomed, rescued worshiper, or as a bitter subject. I'm calling you, this passage is calling you, bow to him like the Magi. Now, as a ransomed worshiper, let's pray. Father, I recognize that this story, in all its beauty, is not as simple and cute as many see it on a regular day. Three magi, exotic gentlemen in turbans walking across the desert, and camels. This is a deeply dark and depressing story on one hand, and also an incredibly beautiful, uplifting, and life-transforming story on the other hand. Lord, I realize that this is not all the time, not all, always what we want to get on a Christmas service, but Lord, I pray that you would move in the hearts here, in my own heart, and then the hearts of all the people here tonight. And that you would show them, show them that you are the true king. The good shepherd who protects, cares, 
watches over his people. And I pray that people would put their faith in you. We ask these things in your name and on the basis of what you did for us on the cross. Amen.